Welcome to Highbrow Lowbrow, the show where our podcast hosts Steve Pyle and Dan Slattery pit high art against low culture. In this special well-being episode, Steve and Dan are joined by University of Liverpool staff member and all-round good guy Chris Simon to discuss three education-themed films which always make us feel happier and which we hope will resonate with students today who need a good movie to decompress from their studies. Steve's highbrow pick is Educating Rita, in which Michael Caine's moribund academic career is brought back to life when he meets a feisty mature student played by Julie Walters. Chris's middle brow pick is School of Rock, as he loves to rock out to Jack Black's unconventional teaching methods, which turn a prep school upside down. Dan's low brow pick is Scream, as he argues that horror films help to release our anxiety, especially this Wes Craven classic in which a group of high schoolers are stopped by a masked killer. Time to swat up on those college movies, dear listener. Remember those growing pains and be prepared to relive the best years of your life. Beware spoilers and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the movie edition of Live Live Pod. I'm here with Dan Slattery and Steve Powell, who are both members of our library team they've also got a really cool podcast called highbrow lowbrow and when they asked us if they could come on the podcast i was of course we've got to because we love movies especially people who work at the library love any form of literature or storytelling these guys have a really good banter back and forth and i just wanted to welcome to the show so welcome dan welcome steve hello thank you for joining us so what we've decided to do obviously since we're university library podcast is a student edition so before we actually get into it in our student edition of this podcast, can you explain, Dan, what highbrow, lowbrow is and maybe well, just give us a little kind of history of how it came about as well? Well, we're almost 20 episodes in. I think we started in June last year. And it came about because Steve and I, when we were on the desk and it wasn't busy, we just ended up talking about movies and comparing our relative tastes or lack of, as the case may be. <laughs> and also, whenever, you know, before COVID, we go to Fact a lot and see movies which I tended to fall asleep in or Steve used to find really dull. So that was kind of the starting point that we do movies that we'd both seen. And then we expanded it, that we then tried to broaden each other's horizons where Steve would try and get some culture into my viewing. And I would try and say, well, Steve, not all Bluebrow stuff is bad as such. I'm incredibly proud of Steve for having... Shall we tell them what lowbrow thing you have in your collection, Steve, of which I am incredibly proud of you? Uh, well, there's probably quite a few. Uh, which one uh, Which one were you proud of you for? Under Siege. Oh, Under Siege, yeah, that yeah. one. Yeah, that's a guilty yeah. pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. allowed a guilty pleasure, right? Yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> but uh, we'd be bantering about films on the help desk and, and people would pass us by and say, oh, you should put this on tape. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> but, <laughs> So that's what we did. But it started, like as Dan said, we'd go to the fact and I'd drag into some Ingmar Bergman season or something, or, or, or Barry Lyndon or something, and he'd tell me to see the Expendables, and just like some old married couple, it was just like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but gradually it was more like a case of, um, yeah, rather than pick a film I know Dan's going to hate, I'd pick a film where I think he'd be partially interested in. Like, if I can just tilt him towards something that he might be really interested in in, in that particular film and just get a hook and try and sell it that way. Okay, great. So normally, Steve, you pick the highbrow choices and yeah. Dan picks the lowbrow choices. So why did that come about? Do you say your tastes originally were the always highbrow or do you just think, how did you get into that path of cinema? 
I wouldn't say I'm too highbrow. I mean, I, I hate to think that I'd be a snob or anything, but I think, if anything, the highbrow is just setting myself up. But I mean, I've loved cinema since I was a child and I, I love the different styles. I mean, I caught the tail end of the film show. I was a big Barry Norman fan and then he retired and that was around the time that Mark Cousins was presenting Movie Drome and I noticed his tastes were a bit more highbrow, you might say, art mm. house. So I got into those as well. I do love genre of films, but there's certain genre films that just do my head in. Recently, the Marvel films, I haven't really been able to find a way into them. So I guess my taste gravitates a bit more that way. And I'm always looking for some new film I haven't discovered before, be it Spanish or, or Swedish or, or just any when you've watched as many films as I have, you start to think, oh, they're actually starting to get the same. And you, you start to look for kind of more experimental stuff just to keep it fresh. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so a question for Dan. The Sidney Jones's DVD collection, more highbrow, more lowbrow? Oh, well, of course, being a university library, Chris, I would have to say it's incredibly highbrow. But then you find titles like Spice World in there and you think, well, I'm sure <laughs> there must be some academic justification for this, you know, popular music or gender studies. I'm not sure. I think it's a bit of both. I'd hate to say to people, oh, you're only going to find some Bergman. You know, there are some popular mu- movies in there as well. So yeah. I think there's a, it's an interesting balance. Certainly some of the stuff that Steve has done and some of the stuff that I've suggested mm. uh, is in there. Mind you, I, I mean, I don't need to look at the collection to get suggestions of lowbrow stuff. I've got enough in my own collection to talk <laughs> Steve with. Um, but yes, if you're listening to our podcast and you hear of a movie you like, chances are you can either get it in our DVD collection or find it on Boxer Broadcasts. And uh, all of the kind of ribbon that you have back and forth, it is all in a friendly way and also about more kind of the love of cinema. So let's give the Lively Pod listeners a little taste of what you guys have got with Highbrow and Lowbrow. I'm also going to chime in with, of course, a Lowbrow choice. But oh, middle brow, Chris. You're in the middle, middle because you're yeah, you like middle brow. Well, I'm, I'm in the middle, but I guess, yeah. yeah. I, think I've shown, I think I've shown you something that you guys like, and I'm quite proud of it from what we spoke about before. So let's say that we're at the very start of a highbrow, lowbrow podcast. You hear the music, you see the logo, and then, bam, three, two, one. Take it away, Steve. Thank you, Chris. My highbrow, or relatively highbrow choice for this well-being college-themed episode is Educating Rita, which was a 1983 film starring Michael Caine and Julie Walters in the lead role. Michael Caine plays Frank, an English literature professor who is kind of middle-aged, in a rut, a bad marriage, down on his luck, doesn't care anymore, hasn't got any passion for literature. And then he meets this student, uh, Julie Walters, who's in her late 20s, a kind of very kind of salt-of-the-earth scouse woman. Although they annoy each other at first, there's a lot of comic potential there, they begin to develop a rapport through that annoyance and through that sen- sense of opposites attract vibe. And Rita, well, it was Susan, I think it really is referred to as Rita, she reinvigorates Frank's love of literature and, and his love of life, basically. She's a strong student from a humble background, but she starts to develop some of the pretensions of the academe or the academy or the literary literati world. And then the relationship comes under strain again. 
It's based on a play by Willie Russell. The play is just a two-hander. The only characters are Frank and Rita. The film, they fleshed it out a bit. So we, we meet Rita's family. We, we meet Frank's partner. Although presumably the setting is Liverpool because all of the local characters are quite scarce. The college itself, when I first saw it, I was just like, is this Oxford? Is it Cambridge? And then I found out it was filmed at Trinity College, Dublin, and it looks absolutely beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful architecture. Michael Caine in his memoir, What's It All About, says a very funny story because the way he got into character is, is, you know, he wears a crumpled suit, his hair's unkempt, he's put on a bit of weight, and one day he saw a man on campus who looked exactly like that, you know, kind of tweedy and straggly beard, and he went up to him and said, you're not a literature professor, are you? And he's like, yes, how did you know? And <laughs> that's that's when he knew he'd made it. Uh, it's it's just a, a really, really good film. There aren't many plot twists or anything spectacular. It's just a well-acted, well-produced, well-directed film. It was directed by Lewis Gilbert, who was a very prolific British director who did war films and drama films, for instance, Alfie with Michael Caine about 20 years earlier, which is another really good film. And three of the biggest James Bond films he, he directed. So he had great range, Lewis Gilbert's. I knew there'd be a James Bond reference at some <laughs> yeah, point. I like when I started looking into like the director, then I was like, oh, okay, I see where the link is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just for uh, the listeners, Steve is a massive James Bond fan and more of like a Roger Moore. Like, yeah, so, yeah, more of a Roger Moore. So, I mean, that Roger Moore is def- def- by definition highbrow or I suppose quite mobile brows Roger had. Uh, God bless him. It's a very funny film, probably the comic highlight. There's a running gag that his, his partner is having an affair. And mm. whenever he comes home, he all goes to her office. There's always this man there who's his pretense is he needs to use the phone to call his publisher. Yeah, he's like... uh, yeah <laughs> and uh, he's just like, what's going on? And then there's a wonderfully rude and kind of belly laugh comic payoff to that running gag, which which I won't repeat because this is a family podcast. Mm. The, the two characters find uh, peace together, the two friends, and they don't end up in bed or it doesn't go down the cliche route. It's just that they find peace and they help each other mm. to, to move on and embrace new challenges. And it's quite a sweet note. It, ironically, I was reading and it helped Michael Caine move back to the UK because he had uh, left Britain to escape the high-tax regime in the 1970s, but he, he was very homesick and uh, he was nominated for an Oscar and he said to his wife, I really want to move back home. I'm sick of LA and sick of Hollywood. And she said, well, if you don't win the Oscar, there's no point in staying in LA because if you win, you should capitalise on that success. And he said the night they read out who won the Oscar and it was Robert Duvall for a film called Tender Mercies. He said he never felt so happy because he knew he was going home. <laughs> so it, I've always found it just a very yeah. sweet film and, and yeah. you know, beautiful production values, just beautiful to look at and, and splendid acting. And, mm-hmm. and it launched Julie Walters' career and she's gone on to just do amazing things. So there's a local angle because Julie Walters is one of the great, you know, little Puglian actors. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I see that somewhere they tried to cast Dolly Parton in the role that Julie Walters, Julie Walters played, but then Julie Walters did the original stage production. So I think she does kind of bring that. I got the idea when I was watching it with the certain scenes that were set up, especially in The Office. It's interesting that you said it as well, that it was like a two-piece and they fleshed out because you seem like a lot of the basis for the films were based on conversations between Rita and the Professor Frank. I also thought it was kind of like a film about class transgression and, you know, like kind of like moving up through education. And you can obviously see changes in Rita the more educated she becomes. And there's like a line that was like quite cutting, but also you kind of see like the fracture in the relationship where 
Michael Caine says to Rita, uh, he goes, I've really done a job on you, haven't I? At that point, I was like, it really made me think a lot more about maybe, and I'm not saying this because I work at a university, I love a university, but a lot of the characters who like Frank associates with are quite like fake and plastic with the fake phone calls and, you know, the affairs and the way he feels towards them. So taking someone like Rita, who's like quite, you know, funny, blunt, like kind of salt of the earth and changing her, there is a bit of like pathos there. But yeah, the ending is a very happy, feel good ending. And I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, what did you think, Dan? If you watch it, you'll notice that, think, well, you'd like to think things have changed because when at that stage, continuing education, which is what Rita's doing at, and an open university course, it's seen as a great inconvenience. And that was at a time where if you got a degree from the open university, you had to put open in brackets afterwards. Oh, so, yeah, oh. because it was seen as a kind of lesser institution. Uh, whereas now, of course, continuing education is a big thing. Mm. Um, you know, access to learning and the OU does very well in the league tables. But I wonder, I've got a question for Steve. Steve, Michael Keane plays uh, an English lecturer. You studied in the English department for yeah. ages. Um, did you ever encounter anybody who hid a bottle of alcohol behind a copy of Last Weekend or uh, similar? I'm not sure I could be permitted to stay, say I know I know lecturers who who were smoking in their rooms when that when that would have been made illegal and. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there were lecturers. Oh you know, gosh, I remember one particular. Yes, he was he was drinking, and uh, one lecturer would always bring his dog in, and and all sorts. It was just yeah, it was very much that world. It kind of it had a certain charm. There was it was it was less corporate. I'll say that for it, and it, it had a certain rustic charm. But there was no accountability, and yeah, there was there was a lot of lecturers who were great eccentrics. In fact, my PhD supervisor for my wedding gift. He gave me a copy of Hannibal Rising and a set of steak knives. <laughs> <laughs> and he put a note on the steak knives. He's like, please enjoy these knives, Steve, for cooking. So <laughs> I don't know if he has certain views on marriage uh, as an institution. Well, university life is, is fantastic. And, and I, I, I love working here and seeing students going through, you know, what I went through um, mm. 20 years ago and all, all the joys and the stresses and the relationships and the crushes and 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 everything about it. I mean, it was, it was interesting, the two points you made, uh, guys, about things not changing. Watching it this time, I was struck by the scenes in the pub where people are smoking and also having a big sing-along. And, um, mm. you, you know, you can't smoke in pubs anymore, which is a good thing. I was just like, I don't think I've, I've been to karaoke nights, but I've never really been to a pub where everybody's singing and have quite that communal atmosphere. So I was just like, well, maybe it is about the passing of a certain kind of, British working class ethos that made me quite nostalgic for my parents' lives and my grandparents' lives. It's one of those kind of narratives that's quite timeless as well, because yeah. I also seen that the original director wanted to remake it in the early 2000s and cast Denzel Washington and Halle Berry. And, you know, I guess in America in that time, there was like, you know, a transition of maybe like African-Americans moving into education where there wouldn't have been before. And then probably in the 1970s or the 1980s, sorry you know, working class moving into education as well. But I thought that was like kind of interest, interesting where she was like always fell out of place, even though she went to the open university and then you made the point as well. But education is so much more accessible now and everyone's got that opportunity. I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I'd probably watch more Michael Caine movies. I think I've only seen Harry Brown. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh. I mean, I think he's made about 200 movies, so you've got plenty to choose from. Yeah. Um, there's a few to avoid the swarm george the revenge 
I think a few that he's admitted were just to pay for the the extension on his house. But uh, I think in, you know, and when you've made two hundred movies, you can have a few stinkers. But there's loads of really good ones that yeah. he's made. He is an icon. <laughs> yeah. Have you got any more questions about the movie, Dan, or anything about educating Rita? Any thoughts? One of the joys of this podcast is a lot of the stuff Steve suggests is things that I always wanted to watch but never got around to, and Educating Rita was one of them. It was enjoyable to watch it, and I could see why it did win awards because the two leads are very good mm. at playing off each other. For our younger listeners, I don't let the fact it was done in the 80s put me off. I also realised something about the 80s. I watched it with um, my missus at home, and I basically said, the 80s looked very grey, didn't it? Like the colours, there wasn't much of a colour scheme. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, again, it reminded me probably stories that my mum and dad would speak about when they'd go to the pub with uh, my nan and granddad. And like it kind of, again, brought that nostalgia around. But is it my turn to bring out the School of Rock? Yeah, yeah go, go on. <laughs> so the reason I picked this one is because it became such a... I think when I was younger, it was at a time when I was probably about eight and everyone had watched it and everyone, probably from our, my generation would recognise it as like a childhood movie. I think it's not probably a typical childhood movie, but it does have the conventions and tropes of it. The film opens with Jack Black playing in a dive bar with his band called No Vacancy, which kind of foreshadows what would be his future or possible future situation. Dewey Finn's playing like this proper dive bar, very dusty back like American bar, like it's Download Festival, the point where he's ripping off his shirt, annoying his bandmates, and he takes a stage dive right into the crowd, and the crowd don't want to carry him at all, being quite a heavy set fellow as well. He just falls all the way to the floor, and then you get a transition to where he wakes up in his apartment the next day. And when he's in the apartment, he's living with his best friend who is new since he was young, who seems to kind of like, you know, grown up and like grown into like a job. And he's got like his apartment with his girlfriend, but he still wants to look out for his friend. And his friend's called Ned Schneebly, which is an important name in the movie. His girlfriend ends up giving Jack Black's character Dewey an earful, saying you've got to pay the overdue rent. Jack Black kind of they're sticking it to the man, his kind of maverick persona that he's got you know, really invested in the music, doesn't really listen to her. He goes to his band practice and his band, due to his antics the night before, have like dropped him in favour of a guy called Spider, who's more of like a glam rock, you know, show-off kind of musician, which is against the morals of like the kind of pure heart rock that Jack Black uh, or Dewey Finn believes in. Then he's trying to flog all his gear on um, by mobile, trying to sell his uh, equipment just to make the rent. He picks up a phone on the other line from a school asking for his friend, uh, Ned Schneebly, who he lives in the apartment with. And they basically ask him to take a substitute teacher job at a very conservative school called Horace Green. From there, the film rolls on. The audience are in on it. And, you know, um, I'm pretty sure um, there's like, you know, moments of like comedic value that you guys must have liked as well. But he goes into the school and he's very disinterested at first to the point where he's even just taking children's sandwiches lying on the desk hungover. He's more giddy about leaving school than the kids are. He can't believe he made it through a day just make with this fake persona. And then he sees them all in music class and he looks in and he sees the talent and he sees like this kind of potential to create this band. So when they come back to class, he ends up giving them all instruments. They end up making this school project together, which becomes School of Rock. But originally it's all about Dewey Finn and what he wants to do because he wants to get revenge against no vacancy at the Battle of the Bands. But the kids end up having an effect on him. Their genius kind of ends up overpowering, you know, what he knows. 
and also he has an effect on them which you can kind of see in the movie at some point where at the very like end they start wearing kind of Ramones t-shirts or like you know picking up his mannerisms and it's that kind of like joy of being he's very childish adult isn't he do we think that our protagonist who's uh played by Jack Black but you know um it's kind of that you know never growing up and like just enjoy the music and that kind of message of yeah, keeping some childish innocence even when the world becomes more serious. Some of my favourite parts is where he has the complete meltdown when, um, you know, singing his version of the song, which is called In the End of Time. And it's all about how, like, he's got to pay the rent. But then, like, you know, the rent was way past due. And then it's, how could you kick me out of the band? You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I absolutely love that. It's like, it's not even a song. It's just like a pure movie moment to me. Like, it's one of those with School of Rock where you don't actually hear full songs often unless you were to go see the stage production. Or I, I don't even think they put out a CD with the full songs as well, but just those small clips of the music, the original songs in the movie, they come into my head more often than not because I watched that many times as a kid. I made this choice because even though it's considered probably a lowbrow family comedy movie that did really well at the box office, it does have a universal acclaim and also a critical acclaim because of just, I think, like how kind of pure-hearted it was and also because of the way they've, managed to put like all this rock history and probably teach a new generation of children about classical dad rock in like what is quite a contemporary story i guess there's even some jokes for the adults as well that we can't say on here because as steve said we're a family podcast but you do kind of catch them every now and then it's like when i watched it just recently before we uh we spoke here i just enjoyed it just as much I'd just like to know what you guys think. Obviously, as being a guest, I wanted to pick a film that was maybe a bit out there, but also a film that hopefully I could turn you on to. So what do you guys think? Well, I, I must admit, because I'm not the biggest Jack Black fan, I was kind of dreading this, but, yeah. but, which is kind of the point of the show, because I had seen High Fidelity, and I didn't like his performance in that particular film because I felt like he didn't change. Mm. His I mean, I felt that film had good things about John Cusack and his relationships and who changed, but... I felt in, in, in High Fidelity, he, he kind of stayed rather nasty, he stayed kind of pointless and the joke wore off quite fast. So I was I was really surprised and really enjoyed this film because I thought it was, in essence was a film about change. So it got it got the good jokes in and and then it it it, it was quite engaging to see the, the story arc and uh, and that it was about different types of, of musical talent like the girl in the class who's a terrific singer. Things like that. I mean, I, friends yeah, have was... shown me some Tenacious D clips and stuff. And it, yeah. it seems Jack Black really knows his stuff. So this was a chance for, for him to make a, not just a, a musical film, but a film about music. And yep. I thought it really came off. Well, apparently it was originally scripted to be not about like classical rock music. But then when they cast Jack Black, they kind of changed what they were originally going to do towards that. So they could probably get, well, they could get the best out of Jack Black because he's such a kind of rock aficionado. Yeah, I agree as well with what you said with like some of the characters. There's one called like Fancy Pants. Well, he calls him Fancy Pants. And he'll always be christened and forever known as Fancy Pants. But he becomes like the designer of all the costumes for like the band. Each what member of the class kind of has that individual difference about them, but fits into like the whole picture, like they're all working together. So, you know, it's a good message, especially when you're younger. It's like no matter what you are, you'll be included. What did you think, Dan? Well, like Steve, I get the impression in most of his movies, Jack Black just plays Jack Black. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's the same form, it's like in High Fidelity and even in I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Mm. Um, 
I'm trying to think what else I've seen him in. But yes, yeah, so I just thought Jack Black's playing Jack Black. But he was surrounded by a good cast of members, especially like the young actress who becomes the band manager. She was quite the hustler. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was that Amanda from like, have you ever seen the Amanda show? It's like Nickelodeon. Uh, I haven't. Um, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I think when I was younger, yeah. Yeah, I think it might be might have been her, but I thought she was brilliant. She got and all the kids. I mean, they normally say don't work with children or animals, but I thought the kids did very well and yeah. you know held up their end very good. And I did enjoy it. Uh, I thought it was a good, funny film and some good musical performances at the end, and some um, intentionally dreadful ones whenever they were rehearsing. You know, what do you think of the soundtrack? Oh, like the soundtrack, a few classic numbers in there, as well as, you know, what well, doesn't he try and teach them some ACDC at one point? Yeah. Um, you know, and so I thought that kind of appealed to the older audience as well, you know, educates the kids. You know, one of them's wearing a Ramones t shirt. Well, why not? Mm. Uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. It was a good choice, Chris. And good I stuff. was pleasantly surprised, like Steve, I was thinking. Oh. But yeah. I actually, you know, <laughs> I did actually, you know, I thought come at the end of it, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah. especially at the end as well with the credits, which I imagine is one take improvisation. Yeah. Um, which is very good. So mm. when he puts his mind to it, Jack Black can actually deliver the goods just sometimes he just seems to fold it in that's the problem well thank you for being so kind to not say it was a bad choice beforehand and then actually give it a go because yeah i didn't realize how worried you guys were can i just finish up yeah if you're a jack black fan and you're a richard linklater fan who directed this one and also has directed many great films watch bernie with jack black i don't think it did much box office but it's based on a true story that jack black plays a mortician in some wealthy but cut off a village or township as they call them in the United States it gets involved in a murder I mean it's it's absolutely fabulous and it's his best performance he's not playing Jack Black he's playing probably a guy who's completely different from about as different from Jack Black as you can imagine nebbish and gay and definitely a, a rule taker not a rule breaker so if you do get a chance watch Bernie I'd really like to hear what you think of it it's interesting because I've always wanted to see him in probably a more serious role. So I'll definitely note that down because you've seen like some comedy actors transition quite well into it, like Jim Carrey in like Eternal Sunshine or like Truman Show. Will Ferrell in Stranger Than Fiction, that was quite a serious role for him as well. So yeah. wonder what it'd be like with Jack Black. So thank you very much. Cool. Are we going to move on to Dan's pick now, which is the lowbrow choice? But you know what? I wouldn't say it's lowbrow. Well, but- thank you. That's, that's very generous of you. My choice is Scream. No, before you think this is a well-being podcast and hearing is choosing a horror movie, there's a reason behind this. Scream is very self-reverential, but we'll come to that. So it starts with um, Drew Barrymore. She's in the house by herself. She gets a phone call and it's somebody giving her pop quiz about horror movies. And she gets a few right and then she gets some wrong. And, well, she comes to a sticky end, I think it's fair to say. But that sets the tone of the movie. Do you know your horror movies? So the main story is Sidney Prescott. Now, the running joke in our podcast is I usually pronounce somebody's name wrong. So I'm going to say she's pronounced Neve Campbell plays Sidney Prescott because I've heard Neve and Nev. But I'm going to go with Neve. So Neve Campbell plays Sidney Prescott, who's at Woodsboro High School. And her mum was found brutally murdered in the town square almost a year ago. And then suddenly these killings begin. She testified that one guy caught weary she'd seen leaving the house and he was put away in jail but there's a reporter called Gail Weathers played by Courtney Cox from Friends who's convinced that she's put the wrong person away and that the killings are connected now this movie came at a time when horror was actually becoming quite formulaic 
And the director, Wes Craven, needed a hit. And it takes advantage of this because, for example, when she's being asked about a scary movie, she says they're all the same. It usually involves some woman with big breasts who can't act running up the stairs whenever she should be running out the front door. Did they call that character the final girl? The final girl. And sure enough, later on in the movie, you get a woman with big breasts who can't act running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. And then there's a character called Randy who says these are the rules of the film. You know, you never say, I'll be right back. You never have sex. You never do drink and drugs. And this is how you survive a movie. Yeah. Although it obeys those rules, sometimes it subverts them as well. Obviously, now a lot of horror movies have picked up on this and they are kind of very nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know. But at the time, like I say, horror was very formulaic. You had your, you know, your Friday the 13th and your Halloweens, which were getting a bit ridiculous. I mean, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers can't run. So you'd have people running away from them. And then, oh dear, they've run down a dead end or they've tripped over something. Yeah, and it was it was all getting a bit stupid. So, but Scream played into that as if to say, okay, let's have some fun with this, and yet have a kind of scary movie at the same time. Let's have a mystery, and it ha- it is a mystery. For example, Sidney Prescott's dad is meant to be away at an expo over the weekend, but they try and reach him and he can't. And whenever she's been getting malicious phone calls, it looks like they're coming from his mobile. On the other hand, Randy, the guy who has tells the rules, he has a theory that somebody else is doing the killings. You know, that's enough to keep you guessing. And the clever thing is, just when you think it's one person, they tend to get killed off. So it's like, oh, okay. If you're listening to this, you think, oh, it's horror. It's, it's actually not that icky for a horror film. And the film actually does you a favor at one point because it says in the movies they use corn syrup for blood. So you think, well, okay, rather than them looking like a bloody mess, all the things wearing corn syrup, it's not the goriest horror movie. So, if you, like I say, if you're listening to this thing, oh, it's going to be grim. A couple of icky moments because it is meant to be a horror movie, but it's not, um, you're not looking at Saw or Hostel or The Human Centipede or some of the really grim ones out there. So, and it's also got did some. Did you just mention ones. Human Centipede? I did just mention Human Centipede, yes. Dear God, I thought we could have got away with that. But... <laughs> <laughs> Should I have done The Human Centipede? Okay. What about um, two? What about three? Yeah. <laughs> I suppose for our biology students, aren't there they could criticize how accurate or inaccurate that is it's also quite funny the way it kind of rips into horror movies and then you can go back and watch the classic horror movies and you can say yes they do follow these rules like you're saying about the final girl trope they do have people saying i'll be right back and uh, of course they come a cropper or people getting drunk uh, mm. or taking drugs and they're usually the ones who come to stick in it's quite fun like that it also is a kind of it does have a mystery element to it subsequent films they kind of go a bit meta, like Scream 2 opens at the premiere of Stab, which is a movie about the events in Scream. Ah. With Scream 6 just around the corner. We're recording this just before Scream 6 comes out. It may well have come out by the time you hear this. The writer of Scream, Kevin Williamson, has said that Scream 6 is a good reinvention of the genre. So it doesn't get tired. It doesn't get formulaic. It doesn't become the kind of franchise that it's trying to you know, make fun of. There was an online uh, magazine where I think in this one, the killer uses a shotgun, which they never used before. And so they were saying in Scream 7, new weapons they could use, like a cannon. <laughs> so it could get quite ridiculous, but I, I know I'm looking forward to seeing Scream 6. But you should, if you like your horror movies, or even if you just want something which is a bit nudge, nudge, wink, wink, then you should watch Scream. And a quick bit of trivia before I finish, the original title of Scream was Scary Movie. Yeah. And then, of course, it was grabbed by the comedy franchise Scary Movie. So there you are. Ah, very cool. I think, yeah, um, yeah it's a scary movie also. Definitely 
borrows from Scream. Like, I watched Scary Movie a long time before Scream. I kind of grew up on those kind of movies, like the stupid kind of pastiche movies. Yeah, I was watching scenes in it and going, that's that's Scary Movie. And then I was like, oh, yeah, switch it the other way around. Obviously, Scream was the influence. But what Scream's really good at is that kind of meta-textuality where... Like, Wes Craven is, like, a king of the horror slasher genre, isn't he? He's, like, made, you know, The Hills of Eyes, well, before that, the Nightmare on Elm Street series. And, um, you know, him actually directing something that's also almost, like, self-reflective and taking the mick out of what he's established, that's kind of funny in itself. And Scream's also a bit of a... It's got elements of comedy as well, hasn't it? It's not always so serious, so it's very accessible. And... Something else I really liked about it was when you asked for the motives at the end, I'm not going to say who because I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but he said peer pressure. And I was just like, that's kind of messed up. That's <laughs> 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 a bit disturbing, you know? Yeah. So even it does even have those very horrific elements, even just in the smallest details. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. So thanks for the pick, Dan. Really did you spot it. the Wes Craven cameo? I did not, no. Okay, whenever the headmaster sticks his head into the corridor and sees the janitor who's dressed in the Freddy Krueger jumper, Mm. that's Wes Craven. Oh, (laughs) wearing the jumper. (laughs) Yeah, wearing the same, the the iconic jumper. Cool, very cool. When you talk about it being quite a meta film, I think, but I was still in high school when this came out, and I assume it's an 18, right? I remember a friend, you know, had it on video and just watching it one night. And, you know, being, you know, watching it underage, it felt, you know, just kind of naughty and very, it felt like the sort of thing the characters would do, just watching this horror movie. And I'm just really enjoying it, uh, even even though it's kind of a a grubby film. But speaking of the headmaster or principals, as the Americans call them, uh, I met Henry Winkler when he was in Liverpool performing in Panto. That was a special moment for me. <laughs> I only met him very briefly in the street, and and my wife uh, insisted on introducing ourselves because uh, I'm a little bit shy about approaching celebrities. But he's very smooth. He's very um, professional and, and kind of friendly, and, and very Hollywood, I guess. <laughs> Can't believe Henry Winkler came to Liverpool to perform Panto. It's just I, one of those I, things. I, I Could have had any reality, and that's the one we're in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you need a job at Christmas, maybe that's the only job going for an actor at Christmas. <laughs> yeah. So. Fair enough. Yeah. You probably get good tips as well. Some sets of flowers. Yeah. Lovely stuff. Is there anything more you guys want to say about Scream? Well, Steve normally doesn't do gore. How did, yeah. and probably you're the best barometer as to how icky it was. Were you able to watch it? Yeah, yeah, I was. I, I I didn't feel like, well, one important thing is this film is pre-torture porn. So if you think torture porn probably started with something like Hostel, this is a good eight, ten years before that. It was a mainstream box office success. And it had like, you know, really attractive, fashionable actors and actresses like Courtney Cox and Lee Campbell. And, and even some, you know, people like Matthew Lillard has, has done this kind of interesting stuff. And I, I thought, yeah, the, yeah, the girl was fine. It was absolutely fine. But I do have one funny story. I don't know if there's an idea, but I remember a friend took me to see one of the recent Alien films because you're talking about people, when people have sex in the movies, they, they get killed. And there's a couple in it who are having a little bit of rumpy pumpy in the shower. And I said, oh, they're going to get killed now. They're not supposed to have sex. And it's like, whoa, 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 they're married. It's fine. It's couples who aren't married who get punished, get yeah. killed. But then they got killed anyway. I was just like, told you. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like as if like kind of like marital sex could protect you from the demons. Yeah. Like maybe yeah. all kind of horror movies are like entwined with that a bit. It's like you know the sinners are the ones who ended up dying through horrific means, but obviously yeah. the character who's normally the last girl, the one who survives, are always like the virgins. Like that seems to be like the trope of horror films. I think they so, are quite biblical. They are quite Old Testament in terms of like there's a lot of judgment and the punishment is quite harsh. And normally but the punishment fits the crime as well. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes the Schadenfreude when when the school bully gets it or something. Could, yeah. Without giving too much away, I did like it when the two killers turned on each other. I want to say this while I've got the platform. I've got red hair. Why are the bullies always ginger? Mm. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. Because, from my experience, the redheads always get bullied. (laughs) (laughs) I've really enjoyed this anyway, guys, and I'm really thankful that you've wanted to come on. And obviously, you guys work in the library, so it's important to let people know who listen to this, that the people we work with are very inventive people, very kind people, and also interesting, like Steve and Dan here. And... um, if you want to listen to their podcast anymore going forward, where would they look, Dan? How can they uh, find you? If we go to Linktree, so it's linktr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow, and then there's links to as many different streaming services as I can find. So it is on Spotify, it's on Amazon, it's on Google Podcasts, it's on Apple, it's on Overcast. If you can't find a streaming service to suit you, then you're too esoteric in your tastes. <laughs> It's all I can say. I've tried to get it. Uh, it's also an anchor. Um, I've tried to get it as widely spread as possible so everybody has a chance to listen to it. And it also gets manually uploaded to SoundCloud. Great stuff. It's everywhere. So, yeah. SoundCloud's very accessible. Like, you yeah. know, if you're kind of ever at like one of your house parties looking to put on a SoundCloud mix, instead just type in highbrow, lowbrow and put that on the speakers and hopefully that'll land. Because whenever I've listened to your episodes, I've really enjoyed them. And hopefully uh, you can have a little watch the films that we suggested. So Educated Rita uh, was um, Steve's suggestion. My suggestion was School of Rock. And Dan's suggestion was Scream, the first one that came out in 95. Am I right? Yeah. Or 95? There's a lot of different Scream movies out there, but we're on about the first. So let us know what you think, uh, you know, in the comments, uh, just saying what you thought of the films. Maybe you have some more suggestions, but um, any kind of film suggestions or cultural suggestions that have been picked up in this podcast will also be left on the Live Live Pod webpage. And any links to Highbrow Lowbrow will also be left there as well. But we've really enjoyed it. I hope you have a really good time watching the movies elsewhere and also hope you had a good time listening. So thank you to Dan. Thank you to Steve, the Highbrow Lowbrow lads. And maybe you'll see him around the library as well, working on the desk sometimes. Also, if you guys, well, Steve, I know for sure you've got something going on. Do you want to mention what's going on in your world with the book? Uh, yes, thank you, Chris. I'd be delighted. I've recently published a book called Love Me, First in Danger, The Life of James Alroy. It is a, a biography of the American crime novelist James Alroy. It's published by Bloomsbury. I've been working on it for several years. It's an authorised biography. Uh, I work very closely with Alroy himself and I interviewed friends, colleagues, partners of his family. I interviewed over 80 people. I went to his archive in the University of South Carolina. Uh, Very quickly, I always had a fascinating life, sometimes a gruesome and tragic life. His mother was murdered when he was 10. That case was never solved. 
he was orphaned at 17. He fell into drinks, drug abuse. He was homeless. He committed crimes. He did jail time. But then he got sober, and and this could be a lesson in well-being. He became a successful writer, in fact, one of the greatest and most successful crime writers of his generation. He's had a couple of relapses. His wife gave me a great quote. She said, James lived life like he was shot out of a cannon. And that's what writing the book was like. It was a completely wild ride from beginning to end. And the pace of the book is like that. I had so much material, it's hard to cram it all onto the page. And the book is, is like a whirlwind. It's, it's very entertaining. But I think it'll be, it's a good well-being book in many respects. Great, good stuff, and a lovely well-being message as well. So you've got free movies and a new book. If you just want to stay inside, have some self-care and a bit of entertainment, come in over the next few winter months before spring, and there you go. We're always the gift that keeps giving. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks again, Steve. It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and we'll see you on the next edition of Live Live Pod. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a special edition of Highbrow Logo, presented by Steve Pyle, Chris Simon, and Dan Slattery. You can listen to episodes of the University of Liverpool Library Wellbeing podcast by searching for Live Lib Pod in your favourite podcast provider. And you can listen to other episodes of Highbrow Lowbrow by going to our link tree. That's linktr.ee forward slash highbrow lowbrow. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Until next time, keep it highbrow and middlebrow and lowbrow. Mm-hmm.